So if you have your Bibles with you, you could open them to 1 Peter 2, starting at verse 8. 1 Peter 2, verse 8. And as I said before, our message this morning will be a special message in light of the election. Um, over the last week, I have been, I've been made aware of two essays by widely respected, uh, among evangelical Christians, widely respected um, men concerning this election. And what's particularly noteworthy is these guys are dear friends and they've known each other for years. Um, they're very closely related theologically. They're in the same very precise camp in terms of what they believe about God and the Bible, and they vehemently disagree about this election. John Piper, you might already know, he wrote a piece on the dangers of Christians seeing heart issues in a president as less important than policy issues that he might pursue. Piper's point was that a leader's bad character corrupts a nation just as much as bad laws. And, and it was obviously a reference to unchristian-like boasting, ridiculing, hurtful words, past immorality of President Trump. Um, Wayne Grudem's response was largely characterized by the argument that Christians know how to vote without selling their souls. You don't have to become morally corrupt to vote for uh, the character of a, a fallen character in a person, uh, whether they're saved or whether they're, you know, we all have sin was his point. And in an election where both candidates are so flawed in character, uh, Grudem went on, it, laws and policies and judges who will create and protect the, the right context for the freedom of believers, the right uh, legal framework for the rights of the unborn, a faithfulness to the Constitution, and economic health are more paramount where you've got two, uh, you know, two uh, flawed men of flawed character. And I, I found myself honestly provoked by both pieces. I mean, wherever you land on it, they were articulate, they were thorough, uh, and they were very gracious. I mean, Piper was very adamant to say that if you vote, uh, he wasn't going to vote for either major party candidate, but if you feel like God's called you to, he's, he, he's not saying you're sinning. That's between you and, your, and the Lord. He was just trying to explain his perspective uh, as best he could from his conscience according to the word of God. Um, and Grudem was the same way, and he called Piper before he published his article, and is this, did I represent you right? And uh, he said yes. In fact, Piper said, here, Wayne, you can strengthen your argument over here. <laughs> you know, he's, he's editing and helping Grudem make his argument against Piper, which Grudem said, you know, how humble is this guy? Um, and so it was beautiful to see their, the harmony with which they live and fellowship with each other, even though they vehemently disagree. Um, but there it is. You know, we're, we're, at, we're at another uh, big juncture in a country that's uh, increasingly losing its common frame of reference in so many ways. And I'm not here this morning um, to tell you which piece was better. Uh, I, I can't arbitrate the disagreement at this point. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, and I won't ask you not to vote for any candidate. I won't tell you um, how I'm going to vote. If you want to know, you can ask me. Um, but I, I, I don't think that who we vote for is the most important thing. I think it's a, a precious freedom to vote, but I don't think who we vote for is the most important thing. I'm not saying it's not important. I'm saying I don't think it's the most important thing. I think the most important thing is what you think about America, what you think about God, and what you think about you as you walk into the voting booth or as you fill it out. I think the most important thing is what you think about America and you and God as you walk into this election and beyond. And so what I'd like to try to do this morning is highlight in a passage from First Peter 
several biblical concepts that I think should be always important, but I think they're especially crucial to hold on to right now. Um, and the, the, verse, the verses I'm going to focus on are 1 Peter 2, uh, starting in verse 9, uh, just through 11. And so this is the word of God. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when you speak, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visita- visitation. Let's pray. Lord, I am so grateful to be able to sing of your love, of the covering of your blood, of the holiness of your son, our representative before you. And so I I go in this morning to this message encouraged and hopeful that once again you will be a faithful husband through your son to us, your bride, the church. Protect me from meandering, dishonoring, and confusing. Bless your people despite me, through me, around me, uh, with the goodness and the nourishment of your holy word that we might be strengthened this morning. We might leave here having a sense that we have met with you. And once again, you have washed our feet. That for another day and into another week, you've condescended to get down on your knees, take the water of your word, and wash us in it in your love. Lord, we can't wait to be with you forever. Even as we're exiles and sojourners here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first concept I want to draw out from this passage is the concept of exile. We are exiles. Peter says, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles Sojourners are those on a journey. They're not where they're supposed to be yet. They're exiles. They're still apart from their destination and their home country. Friends, if you're apprehensive of where this country is going, I am too. If, like me, you feel a sense of increasing unsafeness about our society as a cohesive people, I do too. If you look at these candidates and these parties and and see the brittle, breaking political culture, if you see increasingly a center 
that maybe you're, you're used to years ago, clearly and obviously seeming less and less able to hold itself together. I do too. I feel less and less at home here with every new revelation on the news. They, they come faster and faster about this indictment and this accusation. Every new tweet, every new response. I feel less familiar with every new police shooting, some of which looks suspiciously heartless, and every protest that some of which just knee-jerk into violence and looting, answering evil for evil, I, I feel less and less used to this place, less at home. But I need to remind myself, and I need to remind you this morning, I believe, that we've never been home. We're not home. We've never been home to begin with. We're sojourners, Peter says. We're travelers seeking another destination. We're, we're exiles. The dictionary says that's a prolonged separation from one's country or home. We don't belong here. Hebrews 13, 14 puts it this way. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. America is our nation. I love so many things about our nation, but America will not last. Here we have no lasting city, not in its present form. And may God bless it for centuries as a means of good. But God has put it in our hearts to want and seek a better place the city that is to come. And he has called you to seek this better place and called me to seek this better place. And while we do, we live here as exiles, not as home dwellers. And we have to embrace that. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. And the, the, but complementary with this and my second concept is that we are though exiles, though sojourners, we are a holy nation. So as we go to our home with each other, God's people, we are at home in another sense. Peter says in verse 9, we already are a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are a holy nation. Peter says, and he's not talking about America. He's talking about a holy nation made up of people from every tongue, every tribe, and every earthly nation. A people that, while seeking to be at peace with all men, while seeking to do good in the countries of our exile, we must live as exiles. We, we must always find, inevitably, attention and at times, a war with this world, with its values, that even in our hearts we recognize, right? These values that grow out of unbelief and fear and security in this world and covetousness for the things of this world we don't have, arrogance and greed that come out of the pride and hope in this world, values that will be inevitably found on the left and on the right, no matter who the president is, values that will inevitably be found in our own 
old man, warring against our flesh, warring against our souls, Peter says. This is not our home. As much as we can be grateful for America and thankful for our freedoms and those who died for them, and we should, as much as there has been at times in our history great overlap with biblical principles, it's never been without massive problems and contradictions in those principles, right? This nation is not our home, not in the deepest, truest sense. And so our values must be exile values, must be sojourner values, must be holy nation values. If, if the values of the American dream were cars and homes, for better or for worse, a great car you're excited about, the car you don't have while you drive your clunker, <laughs> If the values of salaries and 401ks, for better or for worse, a salary you're happy with, a 401k that's, in, that's being demolished and, and you're in desperation, where sex lives and our children's grades, for better or for worse, all good things in themselves, if these values predominate our thoughts, if they, without without a spiritual opposition from our souls, if they stoke our deepest desires, if these things are what we think will satisfy us at the core of who we are, if these things determine our deepest peace, then we're not recognizing that we're exiles here and we're sojourners here and we have a better city, a lasting city. And then we have reason to cry out to God to once again heal our lukewarmness and give us balm to heal our blindness, as the Lord says to the church in Revelation 4. And I think it's Ephesus. I could be wrong on that one, but. He says, you don't know that you're blind. <laughs> as Holly was saying, what a gift to know that your sight is not as it should be. And on the other hand of the political spectrum, maybe, if, if the values of political revolution rooted in a, in a godless worldview that ultimately just pits race against race in its attempt to fix race, that pits social class against social class in its attempt to fix economic disparity, in values that find ultimate identity in your autonomy, your will, your personal choice, your sexual orientation, your choice of socio-ethnic victim status or oppressor to blame, then we have reason to also ask God to cleanse us of this kind of pride that would replace one sinful kind of racism or classism or sexism for another kind and call it progress. So let us instead live like exiles who have a different home. Let's ask God for grace to be the holy nation that we are, to strive to be the kind of people who lay our lives down for each other, his bride, right here around us. And for Jesus' sake, give ourselves to caring for the poor in our midst, in our neighborhoods, 
And for Jesus' sake, let us live unashamed of our Savior in the face of a Christ indifferent, at best in so many ways, or at worst, a Christ-scoffing culture that is headed for eternal judgment. Because when we do these things, we look like sojourners. We look like exiles. So if above, above all things American dream and, and above all things political revolution, above all things left and right, if the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins and the state of our affection for him if those have central and growing meaning to us, if those are the things our hearts are pining after, resting in his sacrifice, growing in a love for him and the sense of his friendship, if those things have central place in our hearts, or if we're even fighting and striving after those things, then we can be assured that we're not yet too comfortable here. We've not made a false peace with a world that God says he will judge for its willingness to exchange his glory, the glory of the creator, to turn that aside for the glory of people, the applause of people, the satisfaction of created things and possessions which are good but are never to be our God for the pride of what we've accomplished and what we want. And this has real application for us as we process and communicate about this election. As exiles and sojourners, as a people of another nation, a holy nation, we're not here to stay our hope isn't here. And that means that things don't have to go our way politically. One of the saddest things I see online, and, and just as an aside, kind of, I, I have, since summer, I'll, I'll just tell you guys, I have, this is not legislation for you guys at all. <laughs> but I got to a place where I got so discouraged by the news, uh, particularly in social media, that I started unplugging from some of these things in a more drastic way than I had before. I still have like a sports forum where I argue with people in, in, in fun ways by God's grace uh, um, about sports. But I, there, there can be such as, it's, it's legendary now, like such a toxicity about social media and one of the saddest things i see online is professing believers and this can happen to all of us i want to be careful not to judge i think i've been guilty of this at times but but professing believers who get so caught up in the wrongness of a candidate or the rightness of a candidate that they they fill their their posts with words of despair or anger or critique and slander of, of people they've never met and never asked <laughs> questions about their motivations. 
and they make broad brush generalizations about this group or that group. They leave behind discretion. They leave behind gentleness and courtesy that the Lord commands for us to have, especially when we're bringing critique and when we're bringing correction. And, and we can do this in front of unbelievers online, right? We're always doing it in front of unbelievers on Facebook, on Twitter. We, there isn't a Christian section only, you know? It, and it's just sad to, to see us not live like exiles, but live just like the world when we do this. I'm not specifically even talking about the content. I mean, it, it, it's valid to argue about these things. It's how the arguing is done. I see some folks who love the president write things, post things that are so painfully insensitive to minorities or suffering communities that I I can easily think they have lost their sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. And on the other hand, I've seen some folks condemning believers for supporting the president with such broad brush and accusatory ways that I could easily think that their passion for this issue, it, it betrays a hope in this world that is greater than many of the folks they accuse of selling their souls to Trump. It seems to almost define them. Brothers and sisters, we're not here to put our hope in an America with Trump or in an America without Trump. We're here to put our hope in the kingdom of God so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him, Jesus, who's called us out of darkness and into his light. We have to be careful, Peter says, of the passions of the flesh which war against our souls, through which we dishonor ourselves and our Lord among the Gentiles, And for us, that word means among the unbelieving world. We're a holy nation. Called not first and foremost to proclaim the excellencies of this political policy, this political figure, or his failures, but to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Keep your conduct on Facebook and social media honorable in in such a way, he says, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. They know deep in their heart that your tone and your manner glorifies God, glorifies God on the day of visitation. Let me ask you, If someone hears you speak about the election or reads your media posts this week, would they recognize that you seem to belong to a group of exiles? Or would they just feel like you're just run-of-the-mill part of the world? Would they hear anything in your voice or your tone or your words that would tell them you're caught up in the excellencies of Jesus Christ? Or would they simply hear anger and despair and arguing and quarreling about this election and its implications? Would they suspect that your hope, for better or for worse, is in this world via the president that you want or don't want? 
we're commanded, brothers and sisters, to tell a much better and a different story than the story of this earthly nation. Isaiah 40, 17, the prophet says this about the Lord. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. God is not interested in exalting any earthly nation, ours or anyone else's. He's interested in exalting his name among the nations. This doesn't mean that God doesn't care about nations. We learn in other places he cares about good governments. He cares about social order. But what this is saying is that God cares about the souls in nations. He's not caught up in your flag. He's caught up in your soul. He's concerned for our souls. Nations come and go. The Akkadians, the Chaldeans have come and gone. But souls are immortal. They don't come and go. And so God's concerned about nations because he's concerned about souls. C.S. Lewis said it really well. There are, he says, no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which... And he's talking about their eternal state. May one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, how it will be, you would be strongly tempted to worship it. Or else a horror and a corruption, such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. See, now he doesn't know, but he's talking about Facebook and coffee and conversations with people about politics. He says, it is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the, of, of, of our eternal state. It is with the awe and the circumspection, the reflection proper to the eternal realities that, that are coming. It is in light of those things that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. All of your PS4 gaming stuff with these other people who game with you across the world. Is PS4 still a thing? All of my, my tennis forum where I disagree about Nadal being the GOAT, even though he's caught Federer for the most Grand Slams. Every time I wince at an at a untruth 
online about ideology or faith or politics, and I just feel the, ugh, the adrenaline go in me. I, this is just lies, and I just want to kick their butts publicly. No. There's something bigger at stake. Peter calls it the day of visitation. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. They may say when he comes in the clouds, oh my gosh, Jesse was right. He tried to tell me. I knew there was something different about him. Or, by God's grace, I knew there was something different about Jesse. Thank God I saw that. Thank God that I asked him why. He acted like such a weird guy. Why his attitudes about sex and getting drunk. Why he just wouldn't slander the guy across the hall with me. Thank God Jesus showed up in him and he looks so different. Because now on the day of visitation, through the Holy Spirit working in Jesse, I've come to know this God. We're all going to face something much more weighty and grave than a national election, than unemployment, than a bad president. Something more grave and weighty than a vote on same-sex marriage or looting. More grave and more weighty even than religious persecution. We're going to face the day of his visitation. We're going to face his judgment. And so this means that the primary and exceedingly more important greatness that Jesus is after for America is that her citizens hear from us about his excellencies. Not America's excellencies. Not America's failures. I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about those things, but, but that's not what we're called to by God in Scripture. It doesn't mean we can't talk about that. That's not what Peter's saying. But he's saying, do you know what your job is, though? <laughs> your job is to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ with your life. And if asked, with your words. And if you've got the gift of evangelism, maybe without being asked. <laughs> so that the people of this nation, and, and this city, Frederick, and the people at Dorcas, they might come to believe in his son. They might be forgiven of their sins against him and enjoy his goodness and be transformed into his likeness. So we have a much greater privilege as exiles than proclaiming the excellencies or failures of this nation or her leaders. We have the privilege to tell her people that true and lasting happiness won't ever be found here. But in Jesus. And if they would turn to him in repentance, that if they may even ask him for the gift of repentance, he would have mercy on them. They would become his people forever and find the city that lasts. 
Lastly, we are under his mercy, not his judgment. We are exiles. We are a holy nation. We're called to proclaim his excellencies. And lastly, we are under his mercy, not his judgment. Peter says in verse 2, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Isn't this, I, I mean, I don't know if you're like me, but this is the kind of verse I just read through. I mean, it just, so often it's just words on a page. Unless I sing four songs like we sang this morning, unless I really bathe in this and meditate on this, and that old Hebrew word for meditation where a cow is chewing on its curd, these words just get the drive-by in my heart, and that stinks because they're the greatest words in the universe. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Do you remember? Maybe you don't, that's okay. But maybe you remember where you really didn't care about the church. Where you really didn't care about other Christians. They were weird to you. They were strange. They were a little too much. They made you nervous and uncomfortable. Sometimes they intimidated you, but it felt better to feel like they were just Jesus freaks. I remember that for 20 years. Couldn't take them or leave them. Wanted something that they had, but was never comfortable. I was on the outside looking in. Once I was not part of his people. And then God did something. And he showed me that the family of Jesus Christ, though it has hurt me and it has hurt you, has given me deeper relationships than I've ever had in my own blood family. I get a whole nation is my family. A whole nation, millions of people in eternity are my brothers and sisters. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's not drive by this. He's not talking about mercy that you got one time when you said, God, I blew it, forgive me for this thing I did. He's talking qualitatively about who you are fundamentally. Fundamentally, you have been moved forever and ever and ever from a place of being under God's judgment for your sins to a place of being under God's mercy despite your sins forever and ever and ever, even as you still struggle with sin. And that has great implications for our future. And not just our eternal future, but our future now in, in this election season. <clears throat> One of my first jobs out of college, I was an econ major, believe it or not. And uh, I did for... <clears throat> A couple of years did some stuff in that area. 
And one of my first jobs was doing uh, something called regression analysis. It was a fancy word for trying to figure out how th what things are going to cost in the future. I would track previous costs on past weapon systems. I was working for a defense contractor, and, and then I would take those data points, those previous costs, and I'd put them in a graph, and I'd try to use some math formulas to project future costs on similar weapon systems. Basically, I would look at the past to project out to the future. Sometimes when you do that, you don't have the right data set, or your data set's off and you're wrong about what the future is going to look like. Sometimes you're right. People can do a better job than not, and so it's worth trying. <coughs> but you can get this wrong, and so I want to say at the outset that I can get this wrong, this whole thing that I'm about to say. But I if I had to use the data points of the last few decades and the last few years and the, the rate and the slope of an imaginary curve in my mind of where things are headed, I would say that I think we might... I'm saying this with all kinds of qualifications. We might face difficulties in our political systems and strains on social order that are greater and more protracted over the coming months than we've seen in a long time, even than we've seen in the past six months. I'm not predicting. This isn't a prophetic word. This is just, if I, if I had to, if I was put in a room and said, project it, you know, And, and, and if, if that's true, and even if that's not true, if things kind of stay where they are, what the media and the stock market and the Drudge Report and CNN and Fox News, what they're often going to call out to you and say to you is, be afraid. Be really afraid. Did you hear about this? Wars and rumors of wars. Be afraid. And what Facebook and Twitter and the masses on social media will often call out to you is be angry. Be outraged. And argue with anger and outrage. And what Jesus wants to say to you before you hear those voices and embrace those voices is, you are mine. Your inheritance is mercy. You are mine and your inheritance is mercy. Don't go there without remembering you are mine and your future, your destiny, forever and ever, is mercy. We belong to Jesus now. Our destiny is mercy. Our destiny is not chaos and disorder and burning and civil war and poverty and ruin. We may have to go through those types of things for seasons here. Christians have for 2,000 years. God's people have since God's people have been a people. We may have to go through real suffering, great suffering here. But we go through it. <laughs> we don't stay there. That's not our city. That's not our nation. 
We sojourn through those seasons and we do it with him and we do it under his mercy and under his care. When Jesus left his original 12, his OGs, <laughs> he knew, did I even use that right? I mean, every, like half the time I try to dip into that stream and it's just, it just people laugh at me, not with me. Um, but, but that night when he was betrayed, he was leaving them and he knew they were going to face crushing trouble. I mean, every one of them except John almost surely was going to die as a martyr. John was going to be in exile on Patmos at the end of his life. But, but Jesus wanted them to know the trouble was coming and it could not wreck them. It could not conquer them. And they weren't superheroes. They weren't amazing men of the faith yet. They were weak people, just like we are. They would abandon him. They would pervert the gospel like Peter did. They would resist the gospel as God tried to explain the Gentiles are my people now too. They had fights like Paul and Barnabas. Even after the Holy Spirit came, they were weak people who had all kinds of failures and imperfections. But that wasn't determinative. What was determinative was he had taken care of all of that. Because all they were going to get now for eternity, for their failures, for their sins, was mercy. That's all God had left for them after he finished with their judgment on the cross. Listen to his words from that night. Just a few of his words. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I will come back to take you to be with me where I am. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. But, but really ask yourselves, so what, Jesus? You're Jesus, I'm me. Like, you said, I'm gonna have trouble, but take heart, because you've overcome the world. But that's you, I'm me. What's that do for me, that you overcame the world? We have to ask ourselves that. Why should they have peace? Why should they not be troubled? Why should they take heart? Because Jesus has overcome the world. It is because of the cross. That's what's central in his mind as he says these words. He has defeated sin's power to condemn them. Already in his mind, he knows he's going to go through the cross and rise again. And so he has defeated all the reasons why they would be condemned, why they would be abandoned. He has defeated Satan's power to accuse them and win that case. Because he took their sins on himself, Satan can accuse, but he can never win the case anymore. 
And so he's defeated sin's power to condemn, Satan's power to accuse, and lastly, because of all that, he's defeated death's power to have you and to keep you. That's how he conquered the world. That's how he overcame the world. Through the blood of his cross, he made a spectacle of his enemies, triumphing over them. And now in place of all of that, all you get is mercy now. Whatever God calls us to go through in this season of uncertainty, he goes through it with you. And he will be over it, shaping it, allowing it to do this, but not that. Allowing it to go this far, but no farther. And all that he does in overseeing with his authority above all things in heaven and earth, all he will be doing is making sure that all that happens to you and all he allows in your life becomes mercy ultimately for you. Not judgment. Judgment fell on Jesus so that whatever comes becomes made to be mercy for you. You deserve judgment. I deserve judgment. We barely know that. God knows that perfectly. But he's done with your judgment if you're trusting in his son. It fell on his son. And so now all you receive is mercy. And so God will make economic trouble serve his purposes of mercy in your life. God will make political strife serve his merciful purposes in your life. He will make poor presidents serve his merciful purposes in your life. He will make social turmoil serve his merciful purposes in your life. He will make bad laws serve his merciful purposes in your life. He will make light or heavy persecution, embarrassment or shame or prison serve his merciful purposes in your life. You belong to him. He knew what you were when he purchased you. There's no surprises left for him. He will be your God and he will receive mercy. So, I think a complicated season awaits. <laughs> in our national life. But maybe it'll be completely simple and less complicated. I don't know. But whatever God brings, he's going to make it serve his merciful purposes in our lives. Let's put our hope in that so that we might seem like exiles, so that we might proclaim him to this world that needs him.